Good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to the twice-monthly Climate Report, broadcasting the first and third Tuesday of every month at 6.30 p.m., only here on KVMR. Today, we talk about the importance of nature-based solutions, as well as the top 10 American cities where climate change is predicted to likely have the worst impacts within 25 years, plus various news headlines, and we'll end with more personal climate action inspiration. But first, here's the latest news on the 10 big U.S. cities where climate change is likely to wreak the worst havoc by 2050. That's the headline in Business Insider. And again, I want to remind listeners that a lot of times um, when it comes to climate and the environment, we will use the year 2050, which sounds like it's very far off, 2050. But as a reminder, we are halfway there already, halfway to 2050. Okay, so it's pretty close. These are the 10 big U.S. cities. And, and, and as a reminder, again, by 2050 is when we need to be net zero emissions. The goal by the end of this decade, according to science, is cutting our emissions in half. So in half by 2030 and uh, net zero by 2050. Net zero, the word net is the key there. Zero emissions uh, would mean we're not emitting anything. The word net is sort of admitting that we will probably still have some sort of baseline amount of emissions, but we need to have enacted some sort of behavioral and technological changes that also reduce those emissions or um, negate them, somehow take them out of the air or stop them from getting into the air that type of thing, the technology that isn't ready yet. Um, So these are the 10 big U.S. cities where climate change is likely to wreak the worst havoc. By 2050, sounds far off, halfway there. Um, Bullet points here, though, worth noting uh, at the beginning of the article, some Americans are choosing where to live based on the risk of climate-related disasters. Thank goodness. Um, If you're a regular listener to the Climate Report, you know that recently there have been studies showing that the U.S. population is unfortunately moving into the areas that are most threatened by the climate. That's Florida. um, That's the American Southwest coastal states. Um, And this is uh, balancing out that news by saying there are Americans choosing where to live based on the risk of climate-related disasters. And based on what I'm seeing, my opinion is that um, that will just become more and more of a norm. Um, uh, Eventually, everyone will be making their decisions based on that, um, especially when places are flooding frequently um, or are on fire frequently. It will just be a matter, of course, because we live on this planet and uh, nature is going to begin changing um, our living conditions. So, for example, cities in Florida, Texas, and Louisiana are prone to flooding and extreme heat. And this all comes from insurance broker Policy Genius, which ranked the U.S. cities with the most climate risks. Here are the worst. Um, Cities in the American Sun Belt often top the list of great places to live. Spots in that region, which stretches from Florida in the southeast to Southern California in the southwest, are often lauded for their good weather and relatively lower cost of living. That's the Sun Belt from Florida to California along the south. But they've got issues, too. The climate crisis is predicted to turn the very sunshine that draws people there into extreme heat in the coming years. And being close to the beach puts people in homes at risk of flooding and damage from rising sea levels. As an aside, uh, regular listeners might remember an article that was done by the um, Legislative Analyst Office here in the state of California. 
That is a bipartisan fact-finding office that's supposed to support legislators here in California on the state level, the Assembly and the Senate, um, to analyze issues and provide them with information to help make the best decisions. Uh, so they're oftentimes not the uh, you know, tree-hugging hippiest. They're, they're more fact-finding, economy-based. And when it came to the climate, they said by, I think, 2045, 2040, 2045, 2050, somewhere in that range, the rising sea level would erase $9 billion worth of oceanfront property along the coastline of California. So $9 billion that is above the water right now within a couple of decades is expected to be below the water, and that $9 billion in property value will vanish. Um, uh, They also said at the same time during high tide, though, during the highest of the tides, that would double in $18 billion worth of oceanfront property is expected to vanish. But $9 billion will for sure, and during high tide, another $9 billion will be threatened. Okay, back to the article here, Business Insider. Um, this says here, online insurance marketplace policy genius evaluated the climate risks of America's 50 most populous cities based on their likelihood of experiencing the following issues by the year 2050. Heat and humidity, extreme heat, extreme humidity, uh, flooding, sea level rise, uh, poor air quality, and frequency, uh, increasing frequency of natural disasters such as hurricanes, tornadoes, and wildfires. Policy Genius also judged the city's social vulnerability or likelihood of death and disruption as a result of these conditions, and community resilience, which is the ability to prepare for and adapt to a changing climate, okay? So it's not just the physical um, effects, the heat, the humidity, the flooding. They also looked at the likelihood of the impacts on people, the death and disruption, and each community's resilience, Um, meaning you might have a city that is expected to get more climate and weather impacts, but they might also be really resilient. They might score better than a place that might experience lower impacts from the climate, but be completely unprepared. So it used publicly available data from the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, uh, the US EPA, and other studies is laid out in its full methodology. If you would like a link to this article, you can send me an email, climatereport at kvmr.org. It says, people are increasingly taking the risks of climate change into account when moving. Um, And here are the cities most at risk and why. And again, they just looked at the the top 50 most populous cities. Okay, number 10, my home state. Number 10, Virginia Beach, Virginia. Um, Population, about half a million. They're most at risk of flooding and sea level rise. Um, And... uh, Nearly 20% of properties will be in uh, flood zones. And recently, a few years ago, a hurricane dumped 14 inches of rain there, damaging 2,000 structures, causing $30 million in damage. That's Virginia Beach, Virginia. Number nine, most uh, at threat here in California, Riverside. Riverside, population a third of a million. They're most at risk of air quality, actually. Um, Riverside is 60 miles east of L.A. and is one of the hubs of a region called the Inland Empire, which contains many factories and warehouses. Um, Policy Genius wrote that by 2050, this Southern California city is expected to have the highest number of extreme heat days of any city in our study. Any city. 
all of America, the top 50 most populous cities, Riverside is expected to have six months of extreme heat. Wildfires also pose a serious risk for the area, resulting in poor air quality. Um, For example, in 2021, in Riverside, only 20% of days measured were registered as good air quality. Only 20% of days in 2021, one-fifth, one out of every five, was actually good air quality. And a recent wake-up call, according to an environmental report released by California Congressman Mark Takano in April, the average Riverside family pays more than $4,000 a year to treat asthma cases caused by bad air quality. That's equal to 7% of their income. All right, number eight, Memphis, Tennessee. A population uh, just over 600,000. They're most at risk of extreme heat and humidity natural disasters. Uh, The city is expected to see more than two months of extreme heat by uh, 2050, Um, uh, almost two months of really high heat and humidity, and um, they've been having severe thunderstorms and wind just last year in June, $25 million in damage and power outages. That's Memphis, number eight. Number seven, LA, Los Angeles, most at risk of air quality, natural disasters. Um, In 2021, uh, L.A., while Riverside only had 20% of their days measured as good air quality, L.A. was even worse. Just 15% of days registered as good air quality, and that's in 2021. There's a high risk of wildfires exacerbating the already bad smog and pollution and the congested shipping ports. The American Lung Association's 2023 State of the Air report gave Los Angeles an F grade. It's the smoggest city in the nation. All right, number six, New Orleans. Uh, Most at risk of flooding and sea level rise, extreme heat and humidity. Um, Of course, they've been hit with hurricane after hurricane. Um, In 2021, they even had uh, Hurricane Ida knocked out power and reversed the flow of the Mississippi River. It was so strong. Fifth, uh, uh, most at risk city, Orlando. Now we're heading back to Florida. Um, We're going to have a bunch of Florida cities here. And Florida is um, noteworthy because they are going to bear the brunt of a lot of extreme weather. Um, so the population of Orlando as number five is a little over 300,000 extreme heat, humidity, natural disasters. Um, extreme heat is expected, hurricanes, tornadoes. Um, and then next is Jacksonville, Florida, number four, flooding and sea level rise as well as extreme heat. Number three, Tampa, Florida. Number two, Miami, Florida. Um, so Florida coming in strong for um, the, you know f- four out of the top five cities that are going to be most hurt um, by climate disasters, natural disasters, flooding, sea level rise, um, hurricanes, et cetera, et cetera. And that is still a place where a lot of people are moving to. Those who are more climate conscious and paying attention Um, are not flocking to Florida. But number one in the whole country, Houston, Texas. Um, They are looking at extreme heat and humidity, air quality, flooding, sea level rise, all of it. Um, They can expect to see three months of extreme heat per year, as well as hurricanes, flooding, grid problems, etc. Okay, so there you go. Top 10, okay? 
if you wanted to know, if you wanted to know. And if you know people that are living there or you're thinking of moving there, now you know. Let's talk a little bit about um, a study on property values and how that's impacting local decisions. This is uh, salient here locally because there's also been an ongoing discussion about opening up an industrial hard rock mining operation, an old mine that's been closed for decades, going on 70 years now. And um, part of the economic analysis around that is, well, you know, in those 70 years, we've built some pretty fancy homes right up against the mine. What's it going to be like when you reopen a mine? How is that going to impact all the property values? And that was a big question because they actually couldn't find anything comparable in the entire country. They found three um, in their economic study that the county hired, three places that were somewhat tried to be similar, but uh, none of them actually had something similar to what we had. And so this was interesting. This resonated with me where it's a new study about wind farms. Because as you can imagine, you know, there are people here who are for and against industrial gold mine, and there are people who are for and against industrial-sized solar farms and wind farms. And they're also using similar strategies to say this is going to harm property values. So uh, their new study results are likely to become part of local debates about the ramifications of wind development. Um, and this is from Inside Clean Energy. Um, for years, opponents of wind energy development have argued that the projects lead to a decrease in property values, despite the companies proposing the project saying there was almost no evidence to support such claims. Well, a new paper published in the journal Energy Policy is likely to shape up this debate with its finding that properties within a mile of a proposed wind farm experience an average decrease in value of 11% following the announcement of the project. That's compared to properties that were located three to five miles away. So a project is announced, and if you're within a mile of the project, you're going to see a 11% drop. But if you're three to five miles away, meh. But a mile, once it's announced. But what's interesting, what's fascinating with this study, is the decrease in property value begins after the wind farm is announced, and it continues during construction, but the property value difference fades away after a few years after the project is operational to the point that properties within a mile of a wind farm project have values that become indistinguishable from those that are three to five miles from a project. So the co-author of the paper and a research scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory said the potential for a wind project is something that people are reacting to. So it's not much of a stretch to foresee opponents of wind farms highlighting the 11% decrease in property values from the paper without mentioning that this difference fades to zero over time. Now, the reporter for Inside Clean Energy asked the uh, researcher and co-author, Ben Hohen, uh, he asked Hohen what he thinks of the possibility that aspects of this research could be cherry-picked to argue against wind development. That opponents of wind farms will say, see, this proves there's a decrease in property value, but will omit the fact that within a few years' time, once the project is up and running, uh, the property values return to normal in the area. He said, I can't speak for people that are using the data incorrectly. The main caveat, he said, is that the paper didn't take into account any of the financial benefits of wind farms, which might affect all homes in the area and could include an infusion of new revenue for local governments and schools. Sounds very much like what the gold mine is saying, doesn't it? For some, or even many of the people living within a mile of a wind farm, the benefits may outweigh the temporary loss 
and property value. Uh, the paper also found something interesting in that these negative effects on property values next to wind farms were only apparent for wind farms near urban metro areas, while the effects were not apparent in rural areas. Why the discrepancy, they asked the researcher. He said, we can only hypothesize. But one of the theories out there is that's been supported by other research is that individuals that are in urban and suburban areas value the landscape differently than people in more rare rural areas. In urban areas, they value all the open space they can get because they're just isn't as much of it. They might place more value on the views from their homes than individuals that are always in a working rural environment. And this, uh, this person's a leading researcher on the effects of renewable energy development on other variables such as property values. Um, and so it was interesting. There was, uh, the author reached out to another uh, person at the University of Michigan who has written about community attitudes on renewable energy development to get her reaction. She's collaborated with Hohen in the past wasn't involved in this paper. And she said something interesting. She said, as we deploy things, think of all the different technologies were being deployed in small and large scale, distributed and centralized. Some of these technologies are placed throughout everyone's homes and businesses. Some of them are centralized in large fields and locations. She said, as we deploy things, more becomes known once the impacts have time to play out in communities. So I think that this paper is certainly something is going to factor into community conversations. She noted that some of the most widely cited studies of wind energy and U.S. property values showed little or no measurable negative effects. Uh, effects. So these results differ from previous information. So this new paper is based on analysis of more than 400 wind farms in the U.S. and about 500,000 sales of properties located within five miles of a wind farm. So half a million sales of properties. The researcher overall said his goal with this work is to provide information that can help communities to make sense of complex questions about wind farm development. It's extremely important for them to have good information on which to make those decisions. Again, this really for me mirrored the discussion that's been going on around this industrial gold mine. Is it going to impact property values? And if so, how much? The same thing is going on for solar and wind farms, and this is a fascinating new study that will impact discussions like ours that are happening locally, but in the communities where there is opposition to wind farm development. It seems uh, plausible that just the reaction to the possibility of development dampens property values, but once it's up and running, uh, it seems like the property values return. There you have it. Okay, some other quick uh, headlines really quick. Um, Tesla blamed drivers for failures of parts it knew were defective. Tesla documents show that the company was aware of chronic flaws and failures in its car parts for years, but still blamed customers for the problems, as reported in a Reuters article. Um, the automaker would even refuse to pay for repairs of some parts, even in cases where it knew the problem was likely due to defects and not the customer's fault. Um, so that's an interesting um, bit of information that continues to come out about Tesla, especially as uh, they continue to um, fight against all of the other entrants to the market for a market share. Uh, speaking of um, local community opposition to different projects, an anonymously funded group is stoking opposition to an Ohio solar project, a group called Knox Smart Development is trying to organize people in Knox County, Ohio, to oppose a proposed 120-megawatt 
Solar Farm. The group doesn't list its donors, but someone reporting for Energy News Network said that there are some clear connections with the Empowerment Alliance, which has links to the natural gas industry. This Knox County group held an event at a local theater in which all the speakers encouraged opposition, while a representative of the solar farm's actual developer was denied entry. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Just like we're seeing here in the gold mine, the, um, the fights for renewable energy deployment are happening on community levels. Um, and then let's see, a scaled-back lease proposal for Atlantic offshore wind projects prompts questions and criticism as we continue to pump more oil than ever. Um, there continue to be mixed signals from our federal government. Okay, so let's see. Let's wrap up here with a little bit about uh, tree planting to sponge cities. We touched on this um, recently, but I wanted to finish this. Why nature-based solutions are crucial to fighting the climate crisis. Everyone's focused and titillated in the news about technology um, and thinking that we're just going to shop and buy our way out of this and, and technologicalize our way out of this. It's clear we need to work within nature and its operating systems, and there's no such thing as waste in nature for starters. That's a human-made thing. But here we go. This was something I found The Guardian thought it would be interesting to bring to you. It says, um, the natural world underpins human civilization on every corner of the planet, from oceans to rainforests, grasslands to mangrove swamps. Ecosystems feed billions of humans, produce clean water, and provide materials for shelter. As the planet heats, scientists and conservationists are urging the world to harness and restore nature to maintain a habitable planet. Well, what is a nature-based solution? Nature-based solutions is an umbrella term for using the power of nature to mitigate the impact of climate change while benefiting biodiversity and human well-being. This can mean planting trees to shield buildings from heat, restoring wetlands to create sponge cities that protect people from flooding, planting mangroves and to hold back storm surges in coastal regions. We've reported on this before here about all sorts of ways that using nature and its own functions to help restore itself. Scientists say they are a cheap and underused option for protecting humanity from the environmental crises of the 21st century, improving food and water security, human health, and shielding communities from extreme weather. My personal side and opinion, and again, the views and opinions expressed are those of the speaker, not necessarily those of KVMR, staff management, board, or contributors, but oftentimes these nature-based solutions are things that um, people can deploy anywhere, and it's not a product that can be sold. So that's why a lot of the messaging, um, if, if you're like me and decoupling slowly from all the social media and the news that's giving you the message that, you know, just wait, the rich people are going to solve all this. We're going to buy our way out of this. It's because the, the status quo is made on buying and selling and throwing away things. And so a lot of these nature-based solutions aren't based on that. And so they're not talking about them. But why do we need them? The article continues, the Paris Agreement is not just about limiting global heating. It also includes commitments on mitigation and adaptation to a hotter world where flooding, droughts, and large storms will be more common and intense due to higher concentrations of greenhouse gases. Well, nature can help keep us safe from the worst effects in many cases. And biodiversity matters so much because it helps keep our functioning system healthy. And in many parts of the world, rainfall is expected to become irregular, raining too much than raining too little. Using nature to hold more water in the landscape, whether that's through expanding wetlands or even reintroducing beavers near urban areas so their dams can slow the flow of water. This can improve resilience to both drought and flooding. 
So nature-based solutions are really an uh, important part. Uh, this is something that I encourage those of you interested to look more into. If you'd like a link to this article, uh, feel free to email me at climatereport at kvmr.org. Well, to close the show, as we have been doing here in the new year, I'd like to read a couple of pages from the 365 Days of Personal Climate Action Inspiration. This page is uh, Relationship with Nature. Hopefully one of these um, pages resonates with you and you might be able to take something home and practice uh, during the next couple of weeks until the next show. Or take both of these and, and pick a week for the first week and then the second page I'm going to read here for the second week. However, your boat floats. So uh, this page says Relationship with Nature. It's always far easier to care about something or someone and work for their health and well-being when you have a direct personal relationship. We have the amazing capacity to personally care about people we've never even met, whether friend, stranger, artist, author, musician, or celebrity, even people living in another country. We care about exotic plants and animals we've only seen on a screen with the help of people like Jane Goodall and David Attenborough. However, it's something altogether different to care about someone close to you, who you see quite often, or to care about a special tree that lives near your home, maybe one that changes colors and sprouts new leaves every year. Or maybe you enjoy seeing or hearing a favorite bird that shares your neighborhood with you. Spend more time out in nature with the conscious intent of getting to know it better. Walk through the fabric of life and observe and enjoy it, noticing the insects, the birds, the plants, the animals. The less nature is an abstract thing that exists on a screen and in our minds, and the more we swim through it and be a part of it, the more we will begin to appreciate and know it better. The more loving we will care for it. With a more frequent, deeper relationship, you'll begin to notice things more. You can see the changes of the seasons and become attuned to the day versus night. You can hear the dusk sounds shift from birds to crickets. You can start to detect what is feeling healthy and what is not. You will feel more a part of it, which you are. You will have a better relationship with nature. And we need that right now, today, especially. We are indeed wedded to nature till death do us part. Nature is always outside waiting for you, all of her. She never turns down dates. She will never be late for an appointment. She will always be dressed for whatever the weather. She misses you and hopes to see you soon. And this page of daily climate action inspiration ends with today I will reflect on my relationship with nature, making more time for deepening it. Mm. Relationship with nature. Okay. And then one more for you. This is 365 days of personal climate action inspiration. A little bit for each day. Here's the next one. This is called Earth. We're guests here. One of the more fascinating ways of thinking that needs to shift is the underlying notion that somehow we ourselves own and operate this planet. We, as in humanity, collectively. 
as if it's a machine we built and have the complete plans and owner's manual. It's important to remember that. Number one, we didn't build it. Number two, we don't own it. And number three, we don't operate it. It was built before us. It came before us and will outlast us. It owns itself. It's not anyone's property. And we still don't even know exactly what most of it even is. And it operates itself. It has its own operating system called nature. We must work within Earth's operating system, which functions much like a computer OS. Our planet's nature OS is based on a closed loop of resources with no such thing as waste, with balance a key feature. Earth, we're all guests here. We didn't build it. We don't own it. We don't operate it. And there are cool clues everywhere, though, about how it works. So this daily climate action inspiration page ends with, it's good to remember that we didn't build the planet, nor do we own it or operate it. That's all for today's Climate Report broadcasting and podcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every first and third Tuesday, first and third Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. As always, today's show will be archived and posted to the KVMR website's podcast page for sharing or re-listening. For questions or comments, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. 